Part One, Chapter Thirteen of the Story of the Barbary Corsairs by Stanley Lane Poole. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by James K. White. Chapter Thirteen, The Knights of Malta, fifteen sixty-five. When Sultan Suleiman reflected on the magnanimity which he had displayed towards the Knights of Rhodes in allowing them to depart in peace in fifteen twenty-two, his feelings must have resembled those of Doria when he thought of that inconsiderate release of Dragut in 1543. Assuredly, the royal clemency had been ill-rewarded. The knights had displayed a singular form of gratitude to the sparer of their lives. They had devoted themselves to him, indeed, but devoted themselves to his destruction. The cavaliers whom Charles V suffered to perch on the glaring white rock of Malta in 1530 proved in no long time to be a pest as virulent and all-pervading as even Rhodes had harbored seven galleys they owned and never more but the seven were royal vessels splendidly armed and equipped and each a match for two or three turkish ships every year they cruised from sicily to the levant and many a prize laden with precious store they carried off to malta the commerce of egypt and syria was in danger of annihilation the barbary corsairs even dragut himself shunned a meeting with the red galleys of the religion or their black capitana and the Turkish fleet, while holding undisputed sway over the Mediterranean, was not nimble enough to surprise the Maltese squadron in its rapid and incalculable expeditions. Jean de la Vallette Parisot, general of the galleys, and afterwards Grand Master Francis of Laurent, Grand Prior of France Romagus, Prince of Knights Errant, scoured the seas in search of prey. They were as true pirates as ever weathered the white squall. The knights lived by plunder as much as any corsair, but they tempered their freebooting with chivalry and devotions. They were the protectors of the helpless and afflicted, and they preyed chiefly upon the enemies of the faith. Meanwhile they built and built. Fort St. Elmo rose on the central promontory. Forts St. Michael and St. Angelo were strengthened. Bastions were skillfully planned. Flanking angles devised. Ravelins and cavaliers erected. Ditches deepened parapets raised embrasures opened and every device of sixteenth-century fortification as practiced by master evangelista chief engineer of the order was brought into use for the knights knew that suleiman lived and was mightier than ever their cruisers had wrought sad havoc among his subjects and the sultan would not long suffer the hornets of rhodes to swarm at malta they lived in constant expectation of attack and they spent all their strength and all their money in preparing for the day of the sultan's revenge at last the time came suleiman swore in his wrath that the miscreants should no longer defy him he had suffered them to leave Rhodes as gentlemen of honor he would consume them in malta as one burns a nest of wasps at the time of the siege of fifteen sixty five the city or fortress of malta was situated not as valletta now stands on the west but on the east side of the Marsa, or Great Harbor. To understand even the briefest narrative of one of the most heroic deeds of war that the world has seen, the position of the forts must be understood. On the northern coast of the rocky island, a bold promontory, or rugged tongue of land, Mount Seberus, separates two deep bights, or inlets. The eastern of these was called Marsa Muse, or Middle Port but was unoccupied and without defences at the time of the siege except that the guns of st elmo 
the fortress at the point of the Sibaris promontory, commanded its mouth. The Marsa Kabir, or simply La Marsa, the great port, was the chief stronghold of the knights. Here, four projecting spits of rock formed smaller harbors on the western side. The outermost promontory, the Pont de Fauchet, separated the Port de la Renelle, or La Arenela, from the open sea. Cape Salvador divided the Arenela from the English harbor. The burg, the main fortress and capital of the place, with Fort St. Angelo at its point, shot out between the English harbor and the harbor of the galleys, and the Isle of La Sangle, joined by a sandy isthmus to the mainland, and crowned by Fort St. Michael, severed the galley harbor from that of La Sangle. All round these inlets, high hills dominated the ports. Behind Fort St. Elmo, the Sibaris climbed steeply to a considerable height. Behind the Aranela and English harbor rose Mount Salvador, Calcara, and further back the heights of St. Catherine. The Burg and Fort St. Michael were overtopped by the heights of St. Margaret, whilst the Conradin Plateau looked down upon the head of the Marsa and the harbor of La Sangle. To modern artillery and engineering, the siege would have been easy, despite the rocky hardness of the ground, since the knights had not had time to construct those field works upon the surrounding heights, which were essential to the safety of the forts. Even to the skilled but undeveloped artillery of the Turks, the destruction of Malta ought not to have been either a difficult or lengthy operation, had they begun at the right place. To those who were acquainted with the ground, who had heard of the siege of Rhodes, and knew that the Turks were not less but more formidable in 1565 than in 1522, the issue of the struggle must have appeared inevitable when the huge Ottoman fleet hove in view on the 18th of May, 1565. One hundred and eighty vessels, of which two-thirds were galleys royal, carried more than thirty thousand fighting men, the pick of the Ottoman army, tried janissaries and sepahis, horsemen from Thrace, rough warriors from the mountains of Anatolia, eager volunteers from all parts of the Sultan's dominions. Mustafa Pasha, who had grown old in the wars of his master, commanded on land, and Piali was admiral of the fleet. Dragut was to join them immediately, and the sultan's order was that nothing should be done till he arrived. The knights had not remained ignorant of the preparations that were making against them. They sent to all Europe for help, and the pope gave money, and Spain promises. The viceroy of Sicily would send Spanish reinforcements by the 15th of June. They worked unceasingly at their defenses, and did all that men could do to meet the advancing storm. All told, they mustered but seven hundred knights, and between eight and nine thousand mercenaries of various nations, but chiefly Maltese, who could only be trusted behind walls. The order was fortunate in its grand master. Jean de la Valette, born in 1494, a knight of St. John before he was of age, and a defender of Rhodes forty-three years ago, though now an old man, retained to the full the courage and generalship which had made his career as commander of the galleys memorable in the annals of Mediterranean wars. He had been a captive among the Turks and knew their languages and their modes of warfare, and his sufferings had increased his hatred of the infidel. A tall, handsome man, with an air of calm resolution, he communicated his iron nerve to all his followers. Cold and even cruel in his severity, he was yet devoutly religious and passionately devoted to his order and his faith. 
a true hero, but of the reasoning, merciless, bigoted sort, not the generous, reckless enthusiast who inspires by sympathy and glowing example. When he knew that the day of trial was at hand, Jean de Valette assembled the order together and bade them first be reconciled with God and one another, and then prepare to lay down their lives for the faith they had sworn to defend. Before the altar, each knight forswore all enmities, renounced all pleasures, buried all ambitions, and joining together in the sacred fellowship of the Supper of the Lord, once more dedicated their blood to the service of the cross. At the very outset, a grave mischance befell the Turks. Dragut was a fortnight late at the rendezvous. His voice would have enforced Piali's advice, to land the entire force and attack the Burg and St. Michael from the heights behind. Mustafa, the Saraskier, was determined to reduce the outlying fort of St. Elmo on the promontory of Seberis before attacking the main position, and accordingly landed his men at his convenience from the Marsa Musée, and laid out his earthworks on the land side of St. Elmo. He had not long begun when Occhiali arrived with six galleys from Alexandria, and on June 2nd came Dragut himself, with a score or more galleys of Tripoli and Bona. Dragut saw at once the mistake that had been made, but saw also that to abandon the siege of St. Elmo would too greatly elate the knights. The work must go on, and on it went with unexampled zeal. The little fort could hold but a small garrison, but the force was a corps d'élite. De Broglio of Piedmont commanded it, with sixty soldiers, and was supported by Juan de Guaras, bailiff of the Negropont, a splendid old knight followed by sixty more of the order, and some Spaniards under Juan de la Cerda, a few hundred of men to meet thirty thousand Turks, but men of no common metal. They had not long to wait. The fire opened from twenty-one guns on the last day of May, and continued with little intermission till June twenty-third. The besiegers were confident of battering down the little fort in a week at most, but they did not know their foes. As soon as one wall crumbled before the cannonade, a new work appeared behind it. The first assault lasted three hours, and the Turks gained possession of the ravelin in front of the gate. So furious was the onset that the defenders sent to the Grand Master to tell him the position was untenable. They could not stand a second storming party. Lavalette replied that if so, he would come and withstand it himself. St. Elmo must be held to keep the Turks back till reinforcements arrived. So, of course, they went on. Dragut brought up some of his largest yards and laid them like a bridge across the fosse, and a tremendous struggle raged for five terrible hours on Dragut's bridge. Again and again Mustafa marshaled his janissaries for the attack, and every time they were hurled back with deadly slaughter. As many as four thousand Turks fell in a single assault. St. Elmo was little more than a heap of ruins, but the garrison still stood undaunted among the heaps of stones each man ready to sell his life dearly for the honor of Our Lady and St. John. The Turks at last remedied the mistake they had made at the beginning. They had left the communication between St. Elmo and the harbor unimpeded, and reinforcements had frequently been introduced into the besieged fortress from the Berg. On June 17th, the line of circumvallation was pushed to the harbor's edge, and St. Elmo was completely isolated. Yet this prudent precaution was more than outweighed by the heavy loss that accompanied its execution, for Dragut was struck down while directing the engineers, 
and the surgeons pronounced the wound mortal. With the cool courage of his nation, Mustafa cast a cloak over the prostrate form and stood in Dragut's place. Five days later came the final assault. On the eve of June 23rd, after the cannonade had raged all the forenoon, and a hand-to-hand -hand fight had lasted till the evening, when two thousand of the enemy and five hundred of the scanty garrison had fallen, the knights and their soldiers prepared for the end. They knew the Grand Master could not save them, that nothing could avert the inevitable dawn. They took the sacrament from each other's hands, and, committing their souls to God, made ready to devote their bodies in the cause of his blessed Son. It was a forlorn and sickly remnant of the proudest chivalry the world has ever known that met the conquering Turks that June morning. Worn and haggard faces, pale with long vigils and open wounds, tottering frames that scarce could stand, some, even for very weakness, seated in chairs with drawn swords within the breach. But weary and sick, upright or seated, all bore themselves with unflinching courage. In every set face was read the resolve to die hard. The ghastly struggle was soon over. The weight of the Turkish column bore down everything in its furious rush. Knights and soldiers alike rolled upon the ground, every inch of which they had disputed to the last drop of their blood. Not a man escaped. Dragut heard of the fall of St. Elmo as he lay in his tent dying and said his Muslim Nunc Dimitis with a thankful heart. He had been struck at the soldier's post of duty. He died with the shout of victory ringing in his ears, as every general would wish to die. His figure stands apart from all the men of his age, an admiral, the equal of Barbarossa, the superior of Doria, a general fit to marshal troops against any of the great leaders of the armies of Charles V. He was content with the eager rush of his life, and asked not for sovereignty or honors. Humane to his prisoners, a gay comrade, an inspiriting commander, a seaman every inch, Dragut is the most vivid and original personage among the corsairs. St. Elmo had fallen, but St. Angelo and St. Michael stood untouched. Three hundred knights of St. John and thirteen hundred soldiers had indeed fallen in the first, but its capture had closed the lives of eight thousand Turks. If the child has cost us so dear, said Mustafa, what will the parent cost? The Turkish general sent a flag of truce to La Valette to propose terms of capitulation, but in vain. Mutual animosity had been worked to a height of indignant passion by a barbarous massacre of prisoners on both sides, each in view of the other. The Grand Master's first impulse was to hang the messenger of such foes. He thought better of it, and showed him the depth of the ditch that encircled the twin forts. "'Let your janissaries come and take that,' he said, and contemptuously dismissed him. A new siege now began. The forts on the east of La Marsa had been sorely drained to fill up the gaps in the garrison at St. Elmo, and it was fortunate that Don Juan de Cardona had been able to send a reinforcement, though only of six hundred men, under Melchor de Robles, to the old town, whence they contrived to reach Fort St. Michael in safety. Even six hundred men added materially to the difficulties of the siege, for, be it remembered, six hundred men behind skillfully constructed fortifications may be worth six thousand in the open. It was very hard for the besiegers to find cover. The ground was hard rock, and cutting trenches was extremely arduous work and the noise of the picks directed the fire of the forts by night upon the sappers. 
Nevertheless, by July 5th, four batteries were playing upon St. Michael from the heights of St. Margaret and Conradine, while the guns of Fort St. Elmo opened from the other side, and soon a line of cannon on Mount Salvador dominated the English port. An attempt to bring a flotilla of gunboats into the harbor of the galleys failed, after a vigorous conflict between a party of Turkish swimmers, who strove with axes to cut the chain that barred the port, and some Maltese who swam to oppose them, sword and teeth. The battle in the water ended in the flight of the Turks. Ten distinct general assaults were delivered with all the fury of janissaries against the stronghold. First, a grand assault by sea was ordered on July 15th. Three columns simultaneously advanced by night on Fort St. Michael. One landed in the Arenella and marched to attack the eastern suburb of La Bormula. The second came down from the heights of St. Margaret and made straight for the bastion defended by de Robles. The third advanced from Conradin on the southwest and assaulted the salient angle at the extreme point of the spit of land on which the fort was built. In vain, the Turks swarmed up the scaling ladders. Company after company was hurled down, a huddled mass of mangled flesh, and the ladders were cast off. Again the escalade began. The knights rolled huge blocks of masonry on the crowded throng below. When they got within arm's reach, the scimitar was no match for the long two-handed swords of the Christians. At all three points, after a splendid attack which called forth all the finest qualities of the magnificent soldiery of Suleiman the Great, the Turks were repulsed with terrible loss. The knights lost some of their bravest swords, and each one of them fought like a lion. But their dead were few compared with the unfortunate troops of Barbary, who had cut off their retreat by dismissing their ships, and were slaughtered or drowned in the harbor by hundreds. The water was red with their blood, and mottled with standards and drums and floating robes. Of prisoners, the Christians spared but two, and these they delivered over to the mob to be torn in pieces. After the assault by water came the attack by mines, but the result was no better, for the knights were no novices in the art of countermining, and the attempt to push on after the explosion ended in rushing into a trap. Mustafa, however, continued to work underground, and ply his heavy artillery, with hardly a pause, upon the two extremities of the line of landward defences, the bastion of de Robles, and the bastion of Castile. Both were in ruins by the 27th of July, as Sali Reis, son of Barbarossa's old comrade, satisfied himself by a reconnaissance pushed into the very breach. An assault was ordered for midday of August 2nd, when the Christians were resting after the toils of the sultry morning. Six thousand Turks advanced in absolute silence to Melchor de Robles's bastion. They had almost reached their goal when the shout of the sentry brought that gallant knight readily awakened to the breach, followed by Munetones and three Spanish arquebusiers. These five warriors held twenty-six janissaries and sepahis in check till reinforcements came, and they killed fifteen of them. Their valor saved the fort. Four hours longer the struggle lasted, till neither party could deal another blow in the raging August sun, and the Turks at last retired with a loss of six hundred dead. Nothing daunted, the 7th of August saw them once more scaling the walls and rushing the breaches of the two bastions, this time with nearly twenty thousand men. They poured over the ravelin, swarmed up the breach, and were on the point of carrying the fort. 
all were nearly lost, and at that supreme moment even the aged grandmaster, whose place was to direct, not to imperil his life, came down to the front of battle and used his sword and pike like a common soldier. Eight long hours they fought. Six times came fresh reserves to the support of the Turks. The Christians were exhausted and had no reserves. One rush more, and the place would be carried. Just then a body of cavalry was seen riding down from the direction of the old town. The Turks took them to be the long-expected reinforcements from Sicily. They are seen to fall upon stray parties of Turks. They must be the advance guard of Philip's army. Piali, in alarm, runs to his galleys. The Turks, who had all but carried the long-contested bastion, pause in a fright lest they be taken in rear. In vain Mustafa, in vain the king of Algiers, shows them that the horsemen are but two hundred of the old town garrison, with no army at all behind them. Panic, unreasoning and fatal as ever, seizes upon the troops. The foothold, won after eight hours of furious fighting, is surrendered to a scare. Not a Turk stays to finish the victory. The lives of their two thousand dead need not have been sacrificed. Still, Mustafa did not despair. He knew that the main defenses of the bastions had been destroyed. A few days more, a heavy cannonade, the explosion of a series of mines, which thousands of his sappers were preparing, would, he was certain, ensure the success of a final assault. The day came, August 20th, and Mustafa himself, in his coat of inlaid mail and robe of cramoisy, led his army forward. But a well-directed fire drove him into a trench, whence he emerged not till night covered his path. When at last he got back he found his army in camp. Another assault had been repulsed. The next day they went up again to the fatal embrasures, and this time the failure was even more signal. Repeated repulses were telling on the spirits of the men, and the veteran janissaries went to their work with unaccustomed reluctance. Nevertheless, the trenches, cut in the hard rock, continued to advance slowly, and the cavalier behind the ravelin was taken after a severe struggle, just taken, when Lavalette's mines blew the victorious assailants into the air. On the 30th, another well-planned assault was repelled. One more effort, a last and desperate attempt, was to be made on the 7th of September, but on the 5th, the news arrived that the Spanish army of relief had at length, after inconceivable delays and hesitations, actually landed on the island. The worn-out Turks did not wait to reconnoiter. They had borne enough. A retreat was ordered. The siege was abandoned. The works that had cost so much labor and blood were deserted, and there was a general stampede to the galleys. It is true they landed again when they learnt that the relieving army numbered but six thousand men, but their strength was departed from them. They tried to fight the relieving army, and then again they ran for the ships. The Spaniards cut them down like sheep, and of all that gallant armament, scarce five thousand lived to tell the tale of those terrible three months in Malta. No more moving sight can be imagined than the meeting of the newcome brethren of the order and their comrades of St. Michael's Fort. The worn remnant of the garrison, all told, was scarcely six hundred strong, and hardly a man was without a wound. The Grand Master and his few surviving knights looked like phantoms from another world, so pale and grisly were they, faint from their wounds, their hair and beard unkempt, their armor stained and neglected, as men must look who had hardly slept without their weapons for more than three memorable months. 
As they saw these gaunt heroes, the rescuers burst into tears. Strangers clasped hands and wept together with the same overpowering emotion that mastered relievers and relieved when Havelock and Colin Campbell led the Highlanders into Lucknow. Never, surely, had men deserved more nobly the homage of mankind. In all history there is no record of such a siege, of such a disproportion in the forces, of such a glorious outcome. The Knights of Malta live forever among the heroes of all time. End of Part 1, Chapter 13 Recording by James K. White, Chula Vista